Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I'm your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim, and I have to ask, are you there? Are you listening? Did you survive Thanksgiving? I'm guessing, based on the fact that you're listening to this now, you probably did. I did. I had a nice, sort of low-key Thanksgiving with friends and family, and, you know, kept it small. I mean, I guess there's a whole new coronavirus variant on its way to us, so, you know, gotta enjoy these good times while they last, because if we've learned anything in the last couple years is that stuff can come to an abrupt halt rather quickly. So you have to be grateful, right? You have to be thankful for the time you get, the things you're able to do. I mean, just everything, really. Life is short, right? Right? I recently heard some not-so-great health news about a good friend of mine. It's not being revealed who or what it is exactly, but it makes me appreciate what I have. It makes me better appreciate the things I've been given in life, the things I've earned and the things that just happened to fall in my lap that I held on to tightly. One of those things is the ability to make cheesy movies. And not just make a few cheesy movies. Make a bunch of cheesy movies and have people like you, those of you out there who are listening, who continue inexplicably to support me. I really appreciate you and I'm very thankful and grateful for you. And now, of course, we're into the big holiday month of December. So this is going to be a fun, crazy month, as it always is. It's kind of crazy to think that we're just a month away from 2022. I don't know where the hell 2021 went, but so far so good. We all made it through 2020. I mean, if you're listening, you did. And hopefully your friends and family did too. And now here we're in 2021 and almost 2022. It's like time just keeps going regardless of what's going on in our everyday lives. It's kind of crazy if you think about it, right? Time moves forward and eventually you wake up and you have a bunch of movies under your belt. And your kids are all getting older, and your hair has turned gray, and, and you're no longer the, the hot young new thing, right? Because you've been doing, say, for instance, making movies for like 15, 16 years, and you realize that you're not the up-and-comer anymore, you're the, the old hat. But there's something great about being old hat, because you don't get to be an old hat without being worn a bunch and loved thoroughly. And there's a lot to be said for being the it person, the it whatever. But that never lasts. I've become rather uh, obsessed with the concept of the arc of careers, particularly amongst artists and filmmakers and musicians, and, and, and really just the, the arc of people's lives. Moving from different phases, from being young and naive to being young and less naive but still just as stupid, to feeling comfortable to starting to feel paranoid because you run out of time, which I've always felt like I was running out of time since I was little. I always sort of felt like I was running away from death and it was chasing me. And I think a lot of that plays through in my art. There's, there's this distinct fear of dying unrecognized, dying without having accomplished anything, you know, dying and being forgotten. It's a terrible idea. I hate the thought of that. I want to live forever. And yeah, there are days uh, I could <laughs> I could take it or leave it, if you know what I mean. You have those bad days and you're like, yeah, who gives a crap anymore? But I'm just saying, I would hate to shuffle off this mortal coil and have left nothing meaningful behind. I recently got a great letter from someone who ordered some stuff for someone in their life, their child actually, 
I guess I should back up and say that this kind of stuff is what makes it all strangely worthwhile to me. And, and I know I haven't actually told you what that is, so I'm sure you're just like, dude, focus and get to it. I will. I, I recently took a picture of all the DVDs of all my movies because I'm, I'm selling a full set through the December newsletter because they're all back and available again. Hurrah. And looking at that stack, I was sort of struck by this idea that as that stack of movies gets bigger, it just seems smaller and smaller. And I don't know how to explain it. I think it's just the the feeling like I'm never going to be able to do enough. And then feeling like I, I've just never done enough. When I made that first movie, it was so exciting just to see that one. When I hit three, I was like, oh my God, look at that. I've got myself a trilogy. When I hit 10, it was like, holy crap, I hit double digits. And now it's like, well, it's not enough. It's not really that much. And it's weird to sort of constantly fight with yourself about that because it's always going through my head. But anyway, to try and focus, which you all know I'm very bad at, to get back to the thing that makes a lot of this worthwhile, because again, looking at my stack, it's just the movies themselves aren't always enough. To have created something and not really know how many people even care. Recently, I got this message from a person in, in some part of the country, and I don't, I don't want to give away too much information about this because I don't know if the person they were talking about listens to this. I, I, they might, and I don't want to give away too much. But let's just say I got, a, I got contacted by someone who is the mother of someone else, as all mothers are mothers to someone if you are a mother. I got contacted saying that her child had met me at an event 10 years ago and was probably only, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old at the time. And this kid thought one of my movies looked really cool. And so the mom bought it and I signed it. And this kid fell in love with this movie to the point that they have introduced it to like all their friends. The mom told me that, that it was like the go-to sleepover movie. Oh, hey, we got to watch this movie. And, and this person and all of their friends knows it backwards and forwards. And at this point, I'm sure it's just like, just a thing they do. And I had that kind of stuff when I was a kid too. And it's just, it's, it's cool to think about someone kind of growing up with my movies and, and making that a part of their childhood in a way that I would imagine would stick with this person, hopefully in a good way. I mean, obviously if you watched a movie that much, chances are you probably love it to a certain extent, or at least find something redeeming and positive in it that makes you come back to it and tell all your friends. So, I mean, I realized recently, having done this now for a decade and a half, almost two decades, that there are people out there who may have been introduced to my movies as young kids who are now old enough to start thinking about or having their own children. So I'm getting into like second generation kind of stuff. And I realized that right there is when the long arc of my artistic career starts to feel like something substantial. It's not about the stack of movies. It's not about the fact that I have 16, 17, 18, whatever. It's about someone who is not me, who is not a close friend who's just being nice or a family member who's just going to look at it in a certain way because it's me, but just a random person who found what I did and liked it enough to incorporate it in essence into their life experience. 
And I've met quite a few people over the years who just really like my stuff and they get really excited when something new comes out and they, they buy collectibles and they display them proudly in their houses and stuff like that. And that's the kind of thing that I think makes really all of this worthwhile. Just knowing that it grows beyond my own basement full of DVDs. <laughs> my little warehouse slash office slash production studio. It's nice to know that there are people out there who dig my stuff enough to love it, I guess. That, to me, feels like the real reason I guess I continue to do it. There's another thing about art and, and making types of art that I find really interesting. Because there's a lot of arguments sometimes about whether or not a person should be making art for the money or if they should be, quote-unquote, doing it for themselves. And I'm weirdly on the fence about all of the arguments in that particular discussion. I see nothing wrong with trying to make money off of the thing you work really hard to create. If someone loves being a teacher, I feel like they should get paid because that's a really hard job and it's an important job. And if you're a teacher, you should be able to do it for the money and the love. You shouldn't just have to be like, well, I get paid peanuts and get treated like crap by all the parents and the politicians and all this stuff, but I do it for the love and that's what it should really be about. Well, no, you should be able to get paid. Same goes for artists. I mean, if someone spends a lot of time honing their art and getting better at it, if you're, if you're a painter and really work at this and get better and better, it's like anything, you know? I mean, being a good artist doesn't just come to you. It's, it's something you have to build over time. You may have some inherent talent that you were born with, but if you never actually hone it, it'll never be that great unless you're some sort of savant. And that's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about just sort of average people here who, who work at something and get really good at it. It's like with sports too. Sure. Some of the best have just inherent abilities, but a lot of them, it's just working at it and, and really grinding at it for years on end often for no payoff whatsoever, but you just work at it and, and you get good at it. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with turning that talent, whatever it may be, into some dollar signs. You have to value what you do and, and, and say, hey, what I do is worth something. People don't have a right to just experience it for free simply because people feel entitled to it because they really love it. Anyway, that's a whole different discussion. The point I'm trying to make is this weird thing that always sort of comes up with artists where like, you should make art for yourself. Yes and no. I don't think you should necessarily make art for yourself. I don't think you make art for yourself. I don't make art for me. If I made a bunch of movies and then never showed anybody and I just watched them over and over again, it was like, I'm so good. That's making art for yourself. And that's a bit of a literal interpretation, but it's true. I do kind of do it for the money. I don't do it for the big bucks, but I kind of do it for uh, enough money to keep it going so that I'm not going into debt simply doing what I'm doing. It's not so much that I make art for myself. I make art that I want to make. And therein lies probably the most important distinction here. I make art I want to make and I try to sell it and get people to watch it in the hopes that I'll make enough money to make more. I think maybe the cynical bad version of that is when a person says, I make things simply to make money and I could care less what I'm making as long as I make money. Then there's no heart in it, right? Then there's no, there's no love behind it. Then it's just purely a cynical cash grab. And, and that's a completely different thing. But the point of what I was trying to get at in this roundabout way that I articulate things 
I think that to me, I do what I do, not just so that I can sell things and continue to do it. I do it because I really, really like entertaining people. And I like hearing stories of people who just have a good time watching my movies. People who spend uh, 90 minutes with, with my goofy little universe and feel some comfort in it. Or feel happy and laugh or even a little scared or sad or whatever. Just you can escape into it and enjoy it and have a good time with it. Whatever that means to you. And I've met people who have told me that because it's been around so long and every year they get their new one that it does become tradition. It becomes comfort food. It's like eating ham on Easter, which I don't know if everyone else eats ham on Easter, but my family always seems to have a ham on Easter. Or grilling on 4th of July. Or having a turkey on Thanksgiving. It's just a tradition. And hearing from people who say, oh, my kid has grown up with this and loves it, that, to me, is really, I think, what it's all about. And I'm, I'm really touched and happy to know that I could create a positive part of someone's childhood because I grew up with stuff like the Ghostbusters and and Star Wars and yes I've seen the new Ghostbusters movie and yes I liked it it's just those things that were a big part of my childhood of, of my imagination as a kid as, as traditions of watching Ghostbusters every year and, and just and really internalizing something to the point that I've incorporated a freaking line from Ghostbusters in every single one of my movies you know and I think it's cool. I think that, to me, is maybe what it's really all about. Not being a part of everybody's childhood, but just knowing that these things I've created have been incorporated into other people's lives, even if it's just like their happy little escape for 80 minutes once a year. That, to me, is what it's all about. Because I think, from the very beginning, the Mimiverse has very much stayed true to itself. Everything I've done, I've done because I wanted to do it. And you can ask people who don't talk to me anymore because I did not incorporate their ideas or I didn't let them steer it in some other direction, usually because those people wanted to co-opt my ideas and vision to themselves and make it about them. And if you listen to the oral history of the Mimiverse, you'll eventually probably figure out who those people were. But anyway, you can ask those folks how well their suggestions went over. I really feel like I've been stubbornly insistent on keeping the Mimiverse what I want it to be and to go where I want it to take it. That probably makes me a bit of an egotistical despot. But it's just, if I'm going to be writing and directing a movie, I want it to just be what I want to do. I don't know, it sounds super egotistical, I think, when I say it out loud. But I'm open to collaboration. But when it comes to the vision I've always had of my movie universe, I very much have tried to stick to it from the beginning. And I have definitely pissed off some people in the process simply because I didn't want to open it up to other people's ideas or to take it in other directions or to do things that I just wasn't interested in. What's the point of all this? The point of all this is that I like entertaining people and I feel very lucky to have been able to do it for so long. And maybe it's just that Thanksgiving was just a couple days ago, and I'm thinking about the things I should be thankful for. But I want to just say that I'm very thankful for you and for being a part of this. And even if you're someone who's newer to this or someone who's been around since the beginning or, or someone who was there a long time ago and then disappeared for a long time and is back, I mean, whatever, as long as, as you were figuring into that equation, even those people who did try to co-opt the Mimiverse for their own purposes, I'm thankful for you people, too. All of you folks, I feel a small sense of confidence that when I am gone, 
the Mimiverse itself may live on a little bit in hearts and minds of fine folks like yourself. And again, I look at my collection of works and it just never feels like enough. It just doesn't. And that's been a very good driver for me all these years. And honestly, on a side note, beyond just entertaining people, I like manipulating people's emotions. <laughs> not, not in like a negative way where I'm just like playing with you, but it's just, it's fun to be able to affect a room of people where they're all watching a movie and they all laugh at the same time, or you can feel the tension. You can feel the change in the air when you've scared people or whatever. And so I really like that. So thank you so much for being a part of this crazy journey. That said, I think it's time for me to give it up. I think it's time for me to walk away from making movies and do something different. I'm kidding. <laughs> Did I get you for a second? See, there's a whole lead up to that. You know, I said, oh, I love entertaining people and I feel like I've done enough and yet I feel like I haven't done enough and I just admitted that I liked manipulating people's emotions and boom, did I get you? Did I manipulate you? Just like, wait, no, don't. I'm not gonna. Here's something that I very much realized hardcore recently and I think getting that, that message just the other day really drove it home. And just in case you're like, not clear, I'm still making movies and plan to make more after I finished the Phantom of the Kids and the Day the Earth abruptly almost ended. So the Mimiverse continues. Throughout the pandemic, one of the hardest things has been not being able to do live events, at least not the, the live events that I'm used to with big crowds and premieres and stuff like that. And getting back to it has been nice, but it's not the same, right? They're still smaller. They're still a little paranoid. There's just, it's just, it's not the sort of loose, fun nights of celebration that we've had in the past. It's, there's still kind of, still kind of weird. They're not the same. And I think it's just the overall mood of everything and just everything going on. And you're fully aware of everything going on in the world. And so it's been difficult to spend a bunch of time making stuff like the movies that I've shot during the pandemic here, and then just releasing them digitally or whatever. And it feels very anticlimactic by comparison. It's, it's difficult to deal with just because it sometimes feels like I'm just sort of like, well, I'm done here watch it. I'm moving on. And it just feels like you're kind of like dumping it on the side of the road. Just being like, like it or don't, whatever. I'll never know if you do or not. Because that's the thing with these events is you can always sort of tell when a premiere is going well, everybody in that room knows it. The Giant Spider premiere is a great example of just like, I had that room wrapped around my little finger and it was amazing. Now, the premiere for the late night double feature, not so much. I mean, people were enjoying it and it went okay, but it was kind of a letdown, especially if you'd been to the previous year, because I mean, it's, it's hard to follow that, right? Giant Spider is just singular. So without those live events, without those premieres, without that instant feedback, it feels sometimes like you're just yelling into the void, trying to get people's attention and hoping you hold it in a world when no one necessarily has any attention span just because you're constantly being beat over the head with all the horrible things that are out there ready to kill you. And so it's been, it's been rough a little bit. I mean, on top of just the, the fear that goes along with the pandemic and the world we live in, it's been difficult to sometimes feel motivated to continue making movies because it's, it's sometimes that voice in the back of your head that's always like, you're wasting your time and energy and money and you need to stop doing it, you're whatever. 
And I hate that voice, but it's there. And one of the things that always used to save me, because I always experienced it throughout the movie making process, and more so the more movies I make, weirdly, that's just like, oh, I should quit. This is stupid. But then I'll go to a premiere or whatever, and I'm like, nope, this is worth it. Because I got that feedback. I saw the, the happiness, the joy, the whatever that came with it. And now without that, it makes me wonder, like, does anyone care? So it, it, it was nice to get that email because it showed that, yes, in a grander way, people care. It doesn't need to be everybody. It doesn't even have to be a lot of people, but just those occasional like little messages of like, hey, your movies mean something to me are beautiful and I love them. And so I've been having a lot of issue with whether or not I can keep doing this or whether or not I should keep doing this. And then I kick myself in the head and I say, well, you're an idiot for even thinking you shouldn't because you've been given a great gift. The ability to do this at all is a great gift. It is a privilege that you should be enjoying. You shouldn't be thinking about throwing it all away. I mean, come on. Then I feel like a selfish ass for even like considering the idea of not making movies anymore. I mean, people contribute all the time. And what is a contribution other than a tacit approval of your work, right? I think I, I use this podcast as a, as a way to, to discuss the things going through my head. It's, it's kind of my therapy every month, my movie-related therapy. And I just recently, after receiving that, I'm like, okay, i got to stop being an idiot. I have been given this great gift wherein I can do this thing that I absolutely love. And there are people out there who love it too. What more is there in, in this world than sharing love, right? I mean, the world is a dark, horrible place. And if you can find a little bit of love and a little bit of something that bonds you to other people, you should probably hold on to that. And so I'm not quitting. I'm not sure what I'm doing next because it's been a crazy couple years where I was making multiple movies and, and stuff. And so I'm just kind of looking at just focusing right now on finishing the one I've got and worrying about what comes next when I'm ready, not trying to push too hard. I mentioned earlier how I never take vacations. I'm even thinking about maybe just maybe just taking a little staycation around Christmas and New Year's. Maybe just, just not working for a little while and just watching movies or something. Because I haven't done that enough. And, and I'm feeling it a little bit. And I think it's probably the stress of the pandemic and all that on top of it. So anyway, all of that, I think I should probably talk about the movies themselves before the oral history of the memoirs and uh, Atomic Tales, which is back again this month. Yay. I did just release, just last week, my first ever TV special, the Mimiverse Holiday Special, which was a long time in the making. It was supposed to come out a year ago, but there was a pandemic and everything got scrambled. But we finally did get it together and we got it out. And I really like it. I think it's really fun and cute. And, and if you get a chance to see it, if you've watched it, you know, feel free to let me know because again, I couldn't do a premiere. So I don't really have a good handle on how many people liked it or what they liked about it. So if you ever feel inclined to just like send me a message through my website and be like, Hey man, I like your movies. I really like the holiday special. And here's why. Please do that. If there's anything you would ever want to get me for Christmas, give me that. And then maybe buy some stuff because, you know, money does help. Again, I just discussed the whole money anyway. But yeah, the holiday special is out. And I was able, after it seemed pretty questionable there, I was able to get the DVDs and Blu-rays out day and date. I was promising that for a long time. And then the supply chain stuff made it look like I wasn't going to be able to. And then I did. So I was really excited. I got it, literally got it like four days before I sent it all out. It was close, but I got it. 
and I was super happy about that. If you're listening to this and you still haven't gotten any stuff you've ordered, it should be in the mail, particularly if you pre-ordered or were a contributor who was expecting stuff. And some of those go back kind of a while because that was a project that was sort of languishing because of COVID for a while. So if you if you haven't gotten something and you think you should be getting something and it hasn't arrived, contact me and I can look it up. Because sometimes, too, with the way the mail's been lately in the last year, it's been all wonky. And it's like a couple of people in particular will order stuff. And then a week and a half later, they're like, hey, did you ever send that out? And it's like, yeah, I sent it out the day I ordered it. And then I do some digging on the USPS website. And it's just been sort of like sitting in a post office somewhere for a week. And literally, as soon as I open a trouble ticket, suddenly it shows up within the next 48 hours. Huh. So if, if there's something out there that you think you should be getting and you haven't yet, contact me. I'm sure there's something I can do to help you get it. If you've moved in the last year and you contributed to any of my things, you might want to just update me on that so that I can update your address to make sure you do get what you ordered because they don't always come back to me. And sometimes things just get lost and I, I don't want things to get lost. And I want you to see the movie you ordered. If you gave me money to make a movie and then I made a movie and you're owed a copy of it, I want you to get that copy. I'm not in this to make a million dollars. Although it'd be cool if I did, but again, eh, it's not what I'm in this for. I'm in this to be able to continue doing this without putting my family in, in, in the poorhouse. I just want to be able to make movies and make people happy. That's all I want. That's why I'm doing this. And I suppose other selfish reasons of just loving the fact that I can make cheesy monster movies for a living. I mean, that's pretty cool. The Mimiverse Holiday Special is out. I hope you have seen it and enjoy it. And if you haven't, you can watch it online at Vimeo. Go to SaintEuphoria.com and you can find all the links to go watch it on Vimeo online. Or you can order the Blu-ray or the DVD. I have more in stock, so if you want to purchase them, now's the chance. It probably won't be on the Roku channel for another year. But I guess I should also say that for the first time in a long time... The entire Mimiverse collection is available on DVD. Physical media sales are down. People generally don't order a lot of physical media, but there's still a lot of people out there who do. And statistically, more people buy DVDs than Blu-rays. So I've gotten the entire catalog back on DVD. So you can now order all the movies, including ones that have been out of print for probably way, way too long, like Attack of the Moon Zombies. Destination Outer Space, Cave Women on Mars, Terror from Beneath the Earth, Wereskito Nazi Hunter. They're all back and available. And you can buy a complete set if you go to the December Mimiverse Monthly Newsletter. You can buy an entire set of every DVD, including the Monster Family, the musical, and the holiday special for like 100 bucks, which is a pretty sweet deal for what works out to like 17 DVDs, which normally would cost you like 170 bucks. So you're getting that for almost half off. So... Highly recommend that if you're interested in getting an entire set. The Mimiverse Holiday Special is out, and I, I really hope you like it. And I hope it becomes a part of your yearly tradition of watching the Mimiverse Holiday Special to kick off the season. And it works really well with Danny Johnson Saves the World. The Holiday Special is kind of a spiritual sequel to it. And if you buy the Blu-ray of the Holiday Special, you actually get Danny Johnson Saves the World on the Blu-ray along with all the other stuff. You get more for less. And so you could watch Danny Johnson and then watch the holiday special. It also fits in with the Phantom Lake Kids movies. And and I guess I should say, you can still contribute 
to the latest Phantom Like Kids movie, the Phantom Like Kids in the Day the Earth Abruptly Almost Ended. That is still a possibility. You can still do that, and I still encourage you to do that, even though we're done shooting it. Mostly done shooting it. I have a few special effects I need to do, but I have to finish one very special effects heavy scene to make sure I have everything. And once I do, I can move into the, the smaller special effects that don't require actors with faces. That makes no sense. I need people to operate practical effects, but I don't need any of the actors whose faces you see in the film. But you can still contribute. And actually, one of the best holiday gifts you could ever give anyone, I think, is their name in the credits of a movie. Since it is December, if you contribute to the new film right now, I will send you a hand-signed letter saying that you you got your name contributed to this film and it will appear and you'll get your name. And, you know, it's, it's a cool little, like, uh, contributor's letter that you only get by contributing this time of year. And then you could totally give that to someone in, like, their stocking or at a holiday party, perhaps. And the movie's been shot, so it'll it'll get done. It's not like it's one of those things where you just cross your fingers and hope that whoever's making it actually makes it. I've already shot it, and I've already got 45 minutes of it edited, more than halfway done at this point, aside from some special effects. And so now would be the best time. Go to SaintEuphoria.com and contribute to the Phantom Like Kids in the day the Earth abruptly almost ended. And you can pre-order DVDs and Blu-rays. And even if you don't want to do that, if you're not a physical media type person, you can just contribute 20 bucks and get your name in the credits. And, and you, get a, you get a cool certificate that, that says that you did. Of course, you don't get that cool certificate until the movie's done. But you will get the letter that I sign that you can at least give someone as a as a unique holiday gift. So that's what's going on in the Mimiverse. Again, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the privilege to be able to express myself artistically and to entertain you and hopefully all of your friends and family. I really am. I want you to have a happy holiday season. Stay safe and stay healthy. Watch Mimiverse movies, which, again, they're all available again on DVD. You can order the entire set at sayingforyou.com or at the Mimiverse Monthly December newsletter if you want to buy an entire set. But now would be a good time, I think, to wrap up this overlong section of the audio cast and get into the next part, which is an oral history of the Mimiverse. <laughs> Okay, for this month on An Oral History of the Mimiverse, we're moving into the Cave Women on Mars production era. Last month I was talking about how I had procured distribution for Monster Phantom Lake and it came from the world and we did the premiere and it wasn't it wasn't great and I really kind of was like ready to move on and I'd already been working on Cave Women on Mars at the same time and I'm I'm working at Braun Media. I should say in the background as well, because of how much Tim was willing to pay me to work at Braun Media, Steph and I had realized that, you know, maybe she could step away from teaching for a while and be just a stay-at-home mom. Elliot was still only like four years old, and, and Daniel had joined our family at the end of 2006, and he was only six months old when he came to be with us. 
And so we had these little kids and, and I was working and Steph was working and she was just like, you know, what, what do you think? And we worked it out so that Steph could stay home and I, I would go work. It seemed like a great opportunity. Steph didn't really like it as much as she thought she would. She struggled a little bit with going from being a, a teacher, which she was always very proud of being, and I'm very proud of her for doing it, especially doing it for so long, and then going into being at home, and the adjustment for her wasn't the best. She was happy being home, but at the same time, I think she was sad to let go of this career that she was building. But that's her story. I don't want to put any motivations into what she was feeling or experiencing or whatever, but that was that was sort of going on. But she was able to stay home with the kids while I went and worked. And so we're into 2007, and I'm working for Tim, and we have all these discussions about all the things we want to do. Tim very much wants to expand very quickly, you know, just like throw all this money at it and just like kind of jump headfirst into the deep end. I didn't know any better. So I was like, sure. Okay, cool. So very quickly after I started there, like I'm talking about like maybe a month or two, Tim and I talked about hiring other people. And at the time, the natural addition was Josh. So we brought Josh on. What's interesting about that is that we had all these ideas, but no actual plans. And so we added Josh and then suddenly it was like, well, what's Josh going to do? Well, in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, what am I going to do? You know, we weren't even clear on exactly what the hell we were doing. We just, we knew we wanted to build this thing and we needed people to do it. So that's happening. That's, that's on the Braun media front. On the movie front, I'm trying to finish up the script for Cave Went on Mars. And I realized I don't actually have any clue what it's about or what's going to happen. Sometimes that really works for me. I rarely have a plan when I go into these things. I rarely have like a beginning and end point of anything. Well, I guess I have a beginning, but I never have like an end point, right? I don't know often what's going to happen in a movie. And I just sort of let it unfold as I type, basically. <laughs> I just let it come out and make it work. I had this title, Cave We Went on Mars. I had Brooke Lemke, who's going to be in it. I knew Josh was going to appear in it. And I didn't actually know what the hell it was going to be about or what was going to happen. And so I just started writing it. And I realized about probably halfway through the script, perhaps this film is not about the destination. Perhaps instead, it's about the journey. It's not about the ending. It's about all the things that happen on the way to getting this character back to where he thinks he's supposed to be. But in the process, he finds something greater, and that's what he wants. At least that's what I told myself when I realized that a lot of my movie was about walking. <laughs> it's, it's Lord of the Rings. It really is. It's really just a, a bunch of people walking, and then other people walking to try and find them. And then they finally meet up, and there's one of the world's worst fight scenes, and then that's kind of it. It's a weird script. When it came together, I, I had no real direction, and so I decided that finding direction was the story. <sighs> Whether or not you like Cave Women on Mars has nothing to do with the fact that, in the end, it probably could have been a, a stronger script, a stronger film. I like a lot of parts of it. It's funny. I, every time I watch Cave Went on Mars, I'm never bored. I, I really like the movie. I think the the length is perfect. It's probably the first time I made a movie that it was the quote-unquote right length. You know, a lot of cheesy old movies tended to be between 70 and maybe 85 minutes. And my first two clocked in at over an hour and a half. And I got dinged for that in a lot of reviews. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe I, I try to pull that back. That wasn't entirely on purpose. It was because I didn't know what to do, so I was kind of like, well, I gotta get to some sort of resolution in this script, and 
this is it. And it just, it just kind of happened and worked out. <laughs> uh, but it was really me just trying to get to the end of it. But there were days where it was like, I, this is literally just people walking. I got to put some stuff in there. Maybe a, maybe a monkey character that shows up that, oh, you know, Lieutenant Elliot can fight to show that he's not a weak Liak male or whatever. It just, it was not coming together in any exciting way, but I was just like banging through it. And when I showed people, they're like, oh, this is good. Let's do it. Let's do it. So it was like, well, it is what it is. It must be a good script and I don't even realize it. I should say right now, I'm going to focus a little more in this episode on sort of getting up to the point where we actually start shooting it. Because there was some really fun stuff that happened while we were shooting it. And I want to tell those stories, but it's a longer part. So I think next month we'll get into that. But this is a, an interesting time in the Mimiverse. Because I feel like I'm suddenly in a place that few people have found themselves as independent filmmakers. That suddenly I have sort of like a benefactor and I have a job making movies. And I'm able to hire my best friend at the time to be part of this. And it was just like, ooh, things are happening. And I'm writing the script on company time. And it was was really weird and really cool and and it was fun i mean it felt like a dream come true now there were parts of this dream that were not so good parts that were bordering on nightmare and i'll get into those so remember earlier i mentioned how josh and i started the twin cities underground film festival right well we started that in 2006 and now we're into 2007 and at our film festival the second year of it we ended up meeting Brittany Hughes. Brittany Hughes was a friend of Rachel's. And Rachel was brought in to Cave Women on Mars because having worked with her in from Monster Phantom Lake, I really liked her. You know, we're like the same age. I feel like a, a lot of our outlooks on life can be very similar. I also feel like, you know, we just, we grew up in the same era. Just our, our teenage years were somewhat similar. So we started talking. I, I knew after her not being it came from the world, I was like, you know, if we're going to do this evil Martian lady, Rachel's going to be the one. And so she was already on board. And Rachel knew Brittany Hughes, who came to our film festival. Brittany is like super nice. Sadly, I haven't really talked to her much in years, but we kind of hit it off and we instantly kind of just sat around laughing and, and having a good time. And it was like very easy to, for us to talk to each other and we'd just make jokes. And it was like, I can see myself working with her. And Rachel had specifically brought her to this thing to talk about doing costumes for cave women because of all my movies it's probably one of the ones that really needed a costumer to create these outfits right for the the two tribes and Brittany is extremely talented and it was funny because we talked at this event and she asked sort of like well what are you looking for and i said well i'm kind of thinking of well let me draw it it'll be easier so i gave her this really simple sketch I don't know if she still has it. If she still does, that would be an amazing piece of Mimiverse history. But I just basically doodled out what I thought the outfit should look like. And she took that, that crappy little sketch, and just a quick preliminary discussion about the difference between the tribes and all that. And she created these costumes from that. And that always and still impresses me that she pulled that off because the costumes in that are, aside from everything else, the costumes in that movie are the best we've ever done in anything. And she just knocked them out from a crappy little sketch. I wish you could see what I actually drew. I mean, I'm not a terrible illustrator. I'm not great, though. And everything I do is very cartoony. So it was very cartoony and not great. But she she created something special. And she really thought about it. I mean, she really got down to the 
like the difference between the two tribes and the kinds of materials they use and how the purpose of certain things of why the the zil tribe is very very naturalistic and had earth tones and browns and you know softer materials and the liac were were harder and harsher and and more evil and and we discussed the the idea that the blondes are the good guys and the dark-haired girls are the bad guys which is like an old trope that i just thought was hilarious and and she really she really went with that and so i got the script together and we realized that we had josh we had brooke we had rachel and now we need a couple other roles we need lieutenant elliot we need orla and we need gorga so we need the two hench people of the main representatives of each tribe and i should say real quick that the names for the tribes actually came from my two stepkids liz and michael liz backwards is zil if you take the last four letters of michael and put it backwards you get liak so there you go the zil and liak sounded 1950s spacey so i went with it anyway so we need to fill these roles I originally asked Deanne McDonald, who played Elizabeth in the first two films, to be Gorga because she's tall and had dark hair and she's kind of imposing. And I just thought she'd be a good choice. And she accepted. The original costume was actually built for Deanne McDonald. As for the other two, we needed Lieutenant Elliot and Orla. So we held an audition at the Shadow Creek Studios offices. And it was Josh, myself, and Brooke, who was going to read with everybody. We saw a bunch of people. Of the guys, most of them didn't make an impression. Like, honestly, I don't remember who even showed up, <laughs> which is sad. I don't remember who showed up, except for one guy. He was really good. He brought a serious gravitas to the role, which sounds crazy for when you've seen Cave Women and you see how the role actually came together. But it was just like, he seemed just much more serious. And he played it very seriously and and. I kind of liked that. It was a possibility. But then Dan Shervin came in. Dan had worked with Brooke on something else previously. And those two just like hit it off, right? They kind of knew each other. And Dan Shervin is just like one of the most charming people you'll ever meet. Dan and Brooke had chemistry. Dan's very charming and he sort of turned on the charm. And that was something that I wanted for that character was he, he had to carry the movie. And he had to seem like he had an honest chemistry with Brooke. And he did. He made her laugh and that made her soften up. And not that she's a very, you know, hard-edged person. She's actually very sweet. Ambitious, but sweet. Ambitious and sweet. And the two of them really played off each other really well. And on top of that, there was something about Dan when I first met him that I just felt like I knew the guy. He reminded me a lot of my cousins on my mom's side. My my mom comes from way up north Minnesota, near Bemidji, Minnesota, which is not very far from the Canadian border. It's not that far from Fargo, North Dakota. Something about Dan reminded me a lot of all my cousins who grew up around there. And so it was like, I feel like Dan and I instantly hit it off. It's like, I felt like I just understood him. I felt like I knew him. I felt like I'd met him before. And we just kind of had a similar sense of humor. I remember thinking, I was like, for one, the guy's got charm. 
He definitely has presence, and I think you see that in every movie he's in. He's got a great chemistry with Brooke, but also he just seems like a fun guy who I'd want to hang out with making a movie, because making a movie can sometimes be a grueling experience, and if you're not having fun or like being around the people you're working with, which has happened, then what's the point? You know, I mean, you're going to be stuck working with folks, and, and it's better to work with people that you think would be fun. So instantly it was like, I like this guy. Kind of like Shannon McDonough, he came in and it was just like the role was his. It was the same with Shannon. You know, Shannon, as far as I am concerned, the moment she read for it, she had the part in my head. And the same thing with Dan. And there were other ones that could have worked, but no one beat Dan. It was just like, nah, Dan's got it. Shervin's got it. And as far as the Orla character, we didn't have a lot of women come in, but Alana Bloom knew Brooke from previously and... You could tell they kind of knew each other and had gotten along really well. And it's just like she came in and read for it. And, and those two just worked together well. And it was kind of like there was no real question of whether or not it was going to be Alana. But the moment she said, hey, I'll also do hair and makeup, too. It was like, you're hired. I mean, she gave a great reading. She did a good job. But the moment she also volunteered to do other jobs, that was pretty much it. She was in. And so we, we had our cast. So we're getting ready to go. Brittany's making the costumes. We're breaking down the script, all the while working for Braun Media, Josh and I, not really having any real clue as to what it is we're supposed to do. And Tim's out there trying to sell, 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 and get us some business, which admittedly wasn't that forthcoming. The money was not flowing very well. And early on, there was some missed paychecks. Where it was like, we're a little light on cash, but we will get to you. And then, you know, maybe like the following Wednesday, we got paid. So it wasn't anything that, that worried any of us at the time. It was just like, well, it's a small business. It's how things go, right? And believe me, this becomes a much bigger problem later on. But early on, I mean, we were just kind of blinded by how cool this was that we were able to do this for a living. We have our cast and like the side characters, like the high priestess, that was always going to be Steph. And the, the acolyte was always going to be Liz. And, and like the little Ema was always going to be Emma Danbury, who's Josh's stepdaughter, which I mean, that's why I named her Ema in the script is because we knew it was going to be his stepdaughter, Emma. So we're all set to go when, out of the blue, Deanne McDonald drops out. She already had a costume. We already did a fitting. In fact, there's a picture of her out there on the internet in costume. That was all we ever got. She showed up, she tried on the costume, looked really cool, and then she left, and that was as close as we ever got to actually having her in the movie. And at the time, she had some other stuff going on in her life, and she was going to end up moving, and she did end up moving, and it just fell apart. And we were kind of like, okay, well, what do we do? I went back to the It Came From Another World audition we did, and as I mentioned in a previous episode of this history, that there were a bunch of other people that we met doing that audition for Julianne St. Marie that I was like, you know, you're not right for this, but eventually I'll find something for you. So we dug back and we had a discussion about who could play the Gorka character. And it came down to two people, Shannon McDonough or Emily Frydenberg. Either one could do it. And so we contacted both, called them and left messages in the old days when you used to call people and leave messages and basically said, we have this role for you. Our original choice dropped out, and we think you'd be perfect for it. We offered it to someone else as well because we got to make sure we fill this. Basically, call us back. The first one of you who gets back to us gets the role. And Emily beat Shannon by five minutes. Emily took it, which actually worked out better because Emily and Deanne McDonald have very similar body types. 
They're both tall and very thin, and, and so the costume, as is, didn't need to be altered that much. Shannon is not the tallest person I've ever met. She's thin, but she's not the same sort of lanky body type, I guess, that someone like Emily and, and Deanne are. And so Shannon would have required more work, but that wouldn't have been the end of the world. I mean, Shannon is just really good. I wanted to not use Shannon specifically, and that's why I didn't offer it to her originally, because I didn't want to, like, double up too many people from movie to movie, just so people wouldn't necessarily get confused from movie to movie, like, why it's always the same actor in every movie, which, you'll find out later, became a bone of contention with a few actors. But I digress. It worked out. I think it was a better choice in the end to have... Emily. I think she she worked very well, and I honestly, I can't see it as anyone else anymore, you know? Granted, it's been out for so many years, that's not surprising, right? It's like you're just so used to it, you can't imagine it being someone else. You can't imagine, you know, Nick Nolte being Han Solo. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, we got our cast in place, we're starting to do stuff, we're starting to build sets, you know? And all of this is happening while we're trying to build Brawn Media, and we're starting to get crazy where we suddenly decide, hey, we should hire Brittany Hughes. I mean, Josh and I don't even know exactly what it is we're supposed to be doing. And we're not the only employees. There's other employees as well. And we're, we're like, let's hire someone else. So we did. We hired Brittany Hughes to work for, for Braun Media, again, with this idea that we were going to take over the world, right? We were going to create this big studio and... and it was, it was just, it was going to happen. Not really having any idea what the hell we were exactly doing. Anyway, so we got this going and uh, like I said, a, a paycheck or two slipped. The Big Damn Film Festival starts getting going right about now with a guy named Paul Mary, who I'd met just along the way doing the Underground Film Festival. And, and we had this idea for uh, this traveling film festival that would give other people an opportunity to play in a film festival. And the idea was it was kind of pay to play. We wanted to do sort of a thing where it's like you could pay to have your movie screened. So it was kind of a screening service more than a film festival, but it would be under the guise of a film festival because we group a bunch of stuff together figuring there'd be safety in numbers. You know, we just like a bunch of people will pay us a really small fee, honestly, probably not as much as we should have charged for what we were hoping to accomplish. And we'd play their movie as long as it wasn't completely and utterly offensive to the point that we just like couldn't put our names on it, if you know what I mean. We never got any of that. We got a lot of low budget stuff and, and micro budget stuff, some really avant-garde stuff, but some really decent stuff that we decided we we're going to take around and do it as a traveling thing where we'd go from city to city to city and show movies. And in the back of my head, I'm like, hey, this is a great opportunity for me to show my movies in other cities, right? Tim Braun loved that idea too. So we brought that in sort of under the umbrella. It was working outside of it, but, he, you know, Braun Media was kind of like a, like a sponsor of it. And so I'm just busy as hell. And at the same time, not even sure what it is I'm supposed to be doing other than making movies, I guess. I mean, I was just so focused on making cave women and, and doing these film festivals. And I guess I felt like I never had much direction from the company as to what else we should do. I mean, there's other stuff we had to do. I did some audio cleanup stuff for a, a radio show that wanted to take their radio show and then sell it on CDs. Cause this was back in the day when you didn't just put it on podcasts or whatever. It was like, no, you sell it as a set of CDs. One of the other things that Braun Media did was some 
fitness and self-help stuff and and we we looked into acquiring the rights to other indie films and so we had picked up a couple of those but i was just never as interested in doing any of the promotion on that because i really was just so focused on making cave women on mars because i felt like that was where it was at you know and that's where it had to be that's where i had to focus was on that and then in the midst of all this as we're we're building the set for the interiors of the rocket in the warehouse of Braun Media, we're building the set. I get a call from Steph. She's freaking out and is like, something's wrong with my dad. And I'm like, well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? And she's like, the paramedics are at, at my mom's house. She called freaking out and something's wrong. And I was like, okay, okay, well, let me know. Well, it turns out he had died in his sleep. Steph's dad had some heart problems and he laid down on the couch one day, even had a drink and he flipped on the TV and fell asleep and never woke up. And so in the middle of all these things that I'm trying to do, that happens and suddenly I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And I admit that I, I kind of failed as a husband at this moment because I was so focused on this movie thing that I was creating that I just, I, I messed up and wasn't there for Steph the way I should have been. I look back on it and I realize I should have just dropped everything and said, I'll be there in a second. And I didn't because I'm an idiot. Looking back on it, trying to figure out what the hell was going through my head. I mean, just having, you know, lost my dad and then Liz having gotten sick. And it was just like, it felt like another thing, you know? And there's a part of me that's just like, I can't deal with this now. I kind of shut down and just said, Steph, I have to work. You deal with it. I hate myself for having done that. I, I did it wrong. I should have just said, okay, well, production's on hold. I got to go help out my wife. But I also knew it was like she was just going to go back home for her mom. And, and I should have gone with, but I didn't because I'm a moron. She went there and she took the little kids and it, was, it wasn't great. A few days later, I joined them and... We had the funeral and, and the whole thing. And it was, it was, it was rough. It was very sad, understandably. And I feel like I was a jackass for not being there for her. The little kids didn't get it. I mean, Elliot was four. Dan was not even a year yet. I was just so selfishly focused on my movies that I just, I guess I didn't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with more sadness and sickness and death. But that's life, right? It throws shit at your face and you got to like take it and then wipe it off. You can't always duck it <laughs> for as much as you want to. Sometimes you just got to take it. Not proud of myself. And, you know, I'm sure Steph has maybe forgiven me. I mean, it's one of those things. It's a story of our life. Sometimes you do great things. Sometimes you do not so great things. And you just deal with the consequences and come to terms with your own failings. Hopefully. I mean, that's, that's the goal, right? To, uh, come to terms with your own failings, learn from your mistakes and be better next time. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Honestly, and this is a weird turn for this, but I honestly think that the pain of it for me, cause I, I loved her dad. He was, he was awesome. He was so like proud of the movies and, and he got us Jack Lennon, John, he got us all these things. He was a, he was kind of a, he was a talker and he could, he could talk your ear off and he was just friendly to everybody. And so it hit me very hard. And I think focusing so hard on just my work was a bit of a way for me to avoid the pain of it. And I didn't like seeing Steph so upset and yet I didn't know what to do. And I just, I, I was ill-equipped to deal with it. 
if and when Steph hears this. I hope she knows that I feel really bad and I'm really sorry. And I, I did make a point after that, realizing that I should have dropped everything and been a husband, right? Been a dad, did my job and stopped being an idiot. I feel like I learned the lesson that that was the important thing. I should have focused on the important thing. I mean, that's kind of youth. I mean, I was, wasn't even 30 yet. I mean, I guess I'm still a grown-ass man and I should know the difference, but it's a mistake I made. And I'll stop going on about it. It was, it was not cool. I mean, I miss her dad. He was awesome. He really was. It makes me sad that my kids really never knew their grandfathers. My dad was gone before any of them were born. And I'm not talking about the stepkids. I'm talking about the, the mim kids. And I love the stepkids just as much as the, the mim kids. But I think you know what I mean. I think it's sad that most of the kids never got to know their grandfathers at all. And so I would love it if I would live long enough to meet a grandkid. Because that still bothers me to this day. Anyway, that's a sad side thing. But uh, we, we go there, the, the funeral, um, and we get back, and I guess it's full speed ahead, and we're ready to shoot a movie. And this is probably a good downer spot to stop. Cave women's coming together. We've got our locations. We've got our costumes. We've got our sets. And we're ready to go. All the while, I'm trying to get this big damn film festival together and run a business which none of the employees really truly understand what it is we're supposed to do or what our goals or aims are. It was interesting, to say the least. And I mean that in a very Midwestern way, which is when you're trying to find a nice thing to say about it, and you can't think of anything nice, but you don't want to be mean about it, so you say, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. It was very interesting. A very interesting time in my life. And so we're coming up here on about the halfway point of 2007. We're ready to start shooting Cave Women on Mars, and make Braun Media into the biggest, most amazing production house in all of Minnesota. That's not exactly how it went. You probably figured that based on the fact that you've never heard of Braun Media or Shadow Creek Studios. I'm going to stop there because the next episode is going to focus on the back half of 2007 when everything gets a little weird. And by a little weird, I mean... It gets a little crazy. So this is more like a teaser episode for next month's roller coaster. So that's it for this month's edition of an oral history of the Mimiverse. All right. There's still a lot more of the story to tell, so I hope you keep coming back month after month and um, listening to me lay out all of the crazy stories that made up this little cinematic universe I've created. Now, I'm happy to report that Steve Sullivan's Atomic Tales has returned. I mean, last month, I just could not get it done. I had too much going on, and I just I was running out of time, and I was like, I gotta get this out. So happily, we're back. And so... I guess I'll stop talking and we'll just get right into it. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales! Stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series... Strange Invaders. Tonight, our intrepid adventurers find themselves in over their heads in a honey of a tale that we call Beehive Yourself. 
Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. Grab your gear, Agent One. Agent Seven, ruthless Ruth Donlevy, called to me early one Friday afternoon. After a long stint, I'd been looking forward to enjoying a weekend off. But when the U.S. Science Bureau asks, What's up? I replied. We're going back to Colorado, she told me. Gigi's got the car revved up to take us to the airport. I'll grab my stuff from my locker and meet you in the garage. Minutes later, the two of us were riding in the back of an agency car on our way to Andrews for a flight to Denver. Busy day. Agency Secretary Gigi Brock, our driver, remarked. First a bunch of agents fly to Nebraska, and now you two are headed for Colorado. Nebraska? I asked. Yeah. Gigi replied. I dropped three, six, and eight at the airport to investigate the wreck of the train that was carrying Dr. Hedison's body out here to D.C. What? I blurted. I'd arranged to that shipment after defeating Hedison in his mutated form as the man-sect. Agent Zero thought you and I deserve some time off after our run-in with that guy. Agent Seven explained. How's your shoulder? I rubbed the bandaged wound. Okay, but... But then this new job came up. I'll fill you in during the flight. And Miss Brock? Yes? Gigi replied. You need to be more discreet while chauffeuring if you ever want to be an agent. Gigi swallowed hard, chastened. Yes, ma'am. Half a day later, Agent Seven and I had driven our agency Studebaker from Denver to Hideaway Park, Colorado, a winter resort in the mountains. Since it was still summer, the town's outskirts looked deserted. Lots of rolling terrain, evergreens, and big sky surrounded by the Rockies. The sun was dipping toward the western peaks, and the air smelled of ponderosa pines and warm summer greenery. We've come all this way to talk to a guy about honey, Ruth? I asked. Yep. Agent Seven affirmed. Turned out that honey we found in Hedison's lab had some kind of strange contamination, similar to what Doc Tarragon found in that giant ant nest your team explored. I shuddered at the memory. I guess stopping the mansect wasn't the end of the giant bug invasion. She shrugged. Still too early to tell. Maybe we can get some info from this guy. Ruth pulled the Studebaker up to a hillside cabin with a hand-lettered sign declaring, Souvenirs, Maps, Snowshoe Rental, Best Local Honey. The place looked more like a run-down private home than an actual business. A rusting Ford pickup sat in front of an even rattier-looking garage out back. It seemed we weren't the only customers, though. A well-maintained, late-model blue Chevy Bel Air sat in the wide gravel driveway-slash-parking-lot area next to the building. Ruth parked next to the Chevy, and we headed for the cabin's front porch, which displayed the shack's advertised wares in propped-up wooden boxes. A man in overalls and a sleeveless white undershirt stood on the porch talking to a woman in a red blouse and maroon skirt. Her pencil flew quickly across a pad of notepaper. The man clutched a jar of honey in his calloused hand. Both of them watched us as Seven and I approached. Clearly, we weren't from the area. Mr. Gordon, Agent Seven said. Proprietor of Hideaway Honey? That's me, Gordon replied, suspicious. Best honey in the Rocky Mountains. The pine scent from the nearby forest couldn't cover the musk of his cheap aftershave. We'd like to talk to you about that honey, I said. Gordon grinned a gapped tooth smile. Must be a banner day, he proclaimed. Little Miss here was just asking about that, too. The woman in red extended her hand. Tammy Rubens from the Denver Examiner. We chase the news that you can use, and you are? I'm Agent Raymond, and this is Agent Ruth, I said. Gordon's gray eyes narrowed. Not revenuers here to arrest me, are you? 
Not today, Agent Seven replied, deadpan. Hideaway honey is very popular in Denver. Miss Rubens explained. That's the focus of my article. She smiled sweetly. But if the government wants to talk to you, I'd better be going, Mr. Gordon. You give me a good write-up, won't you, Missy? He reminded her. You bet. Miss Rubens replied. With a nod and a brief wave, she got in her Chevy and drove away. Now, Gordon said, less friendly since the reporter had gone. What you government types want? We need to know where you're getting your honey. I replied. That's a secret, he said proudly. Industrial secret, you might say. Ruth put on her best steely-eyed killer face. There are no secrets from the U.S. government. It took Ruth and me the better part of an hour to convince Gordon that we didn't care about his illicit income, but were, instead, concerned with contamination our scientists had discovered in his honey. Contamination that might hurt people and get him sued. Reluctantly, he got into his battered Ford and led us to his source. Not a hidden set of woodland hives, but, weirdly, to an old water tunnel in the mountains. The three-yard wide entrance was partially boarded over, but a small stream of clear liquid still ran from it into the ravine beyond, and alongside the water came something else, a golden trickle being funneled by a makeshift collection device into a two-gallon jug. There must be a hell of a big hive in that tunnel. Seven, ever the scientist noted. I discovered it a while back, Gordon said proudly. It was just going to waste, so I figured, what the hell? Remember, you said you wouldn't tell. Not if it's safe, I reminded him, poking around the hillside opening. Ruth, these boards are loose. The bottom cluster of planks swung up, almost like a doggy door. And can you hear that? Agent Seven nodded. The buzzing echoing from inside the tunnel sounded almost like an approaching freight train. You don't want to go messing around in there, Gordon warned. I had an old dog that went in when I discovered the honey. He didn't never come out. Sorry, I said, pulling out a flashlight. I pushed the boards aside and peered in. It's our job to investigate. Ruth crowded close to get a look as well. The dingy tunnel vanished into the mountainside. But just at the edge of their reach, our flashlight beams shone upon something golden blocking most of the passage. A wall of six-sided cells. Beehive, Ruth whispered, stunned. It's huge, I added, my mouth dry. She nodded. These are no ordinary. Ray, look out! Ruth and I dove for cover as a giant bee flew down the tunnel straight at the opening we'd made in the boards. Mr. Gordon, duck! I cried. Whether he didn't hear me or was too stunned to move, We'll never know, because before he could hit the deck, the bee attacked. The bug wasn't as big as the giant ants plaguing the desert southwest, but its body was at least the size of a German shepherd, with a sting as long as my little finger. Gordon screamed once and fell into the pine bracken, dead. Seven and I fired our agency automatics, each putting one into the monster insect's body, and a second into its head. Greenish ichor sprayed the honey farmer's corpse as the creature died and rapidly disintegrated into foul-smelling ooze. Damn it! I cursed. We need to have Gordon cleaned up and buried at government expense once we finished this case. Ray! There are more! Seven warned, pointing to the tunnel. Of course. There's never just one bee in a hive. Make for the car! I commanded. I shot the next bug pushing through the boards, decapitating it as the two of us ran for the Studebaker. Will the car's steel keep them out? I asked as Seven picked off two more that edged past the obstruction. Not sure, she replied. We kept firing as new bees emerged, but we'd have to reload soon, and then... 
I opened the Studebaker's trunk and tossed a shotgun to Ruth as our automatics ran out of ammo. Ray, remember how we finished that centipede in that ghost town? She asked. Sure, I replied. She tossed her scattergun back to me. Hold them off! I'm going to try the same thing with Gordon's truck. With a pump-action shotgun in each hand, I would have done John Wayne proud, but the bees just kept coming. More and more crowded the tunnel exit, their angry buzzing building like the drone of an air raid siren. As I chambered my last round, Ruth yelled, Ray, take cover! Gordon's Ford rocketed past me. Ruthless Ruth had jammed the accelerator somehow and sent it kamikaze-style toward the tunnel entrance. I joined her behind our Studebaker as the pickup reached the beehive entrance. The entire mountainside rumbled as orange flames consumed the tunnel, frying the bees swarming the entrance into blackened husks. A smell like burnt shrimp assaulted my nose as the shockwave set my ears ringing and knocked me on my can. Fortunately, the blazing truck blocked any more bug attacks. For now. You're getting pretty good at making cars into Molotov cocktails, I observed, dusting myself off. Keep it up and you'll give Boom Boom a run for his money. She laughed before growing serious. Oh, we need to call in the army. Hope this burns long enough for them to get here. And if it doesn't, I asked. She patted our Studebaker and grinned. Then we've got one more cocktail to serve. And you get to continue your record of destroying agency property. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Beehive Yourself, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim, who also played Agent One, and featured Stephanie Mim as Agent Seven, Ruthless Ruth Donlevy, Gwen Ruhoff as Agency Secretary and Chauffeur Gigi Brock, Danielle Gerlader, a.k.a. horror host Penny Dreadful as reporter Tammy Rubens, and Mark Hader as Mr. Gordon, the would-be honey magnate. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. This is the St. Euphoria Audiocast Network. Thank you so much for listening this month. Again, I'm grateful and thankful for you. I'm happy that my films are a part of your life in whatever capacity they may be. And I'm happy beyond the fact that a lot of you are fans, but that a lot of you are have become friends. Everything about the Mimiverse from the beginning has always been very personal to me, and I've loved the fact that I've met so many great people who have become close, who have become friends. I just wanted to say thank you for your friendship, for indulging me checking out my work. It means a lot. I hope you have a great holiday season. I hope you stay safe. I hope you stay healthy and happy and and, and you get everything you'd hoped for this year. And if, if not, hey, there's always next year, right? So happy new year when it comes up here. I still can't believe it's almost 2022. What the hell? Wow. Be good to each other, all right? Let's stop fighting. Let's stop bickering over stupid crap. Let's take care of each other. Let's... 
come together. Let's be good people and find common ground. Maybe that common ground is just your love of cheesy monster movies. You don't have to agree on everything politically or religiously or whatever. Let's find common ground and realize we're all people and we're all just trying to make our way in the world and we're all just trying to be safe and happy and healthy and take care of the people we love and to be there for them. And we all want the same things. At least I think most people do. I'm sure there are those people out there who just want to joker this shit up and watch the world burn. We're not talking about them. We're talking about good people like you who just want some stability in life again. Wouldn't that be nice? Just a nice worldwide feeling of some sort of sense of stability. Wouldn't that be amazing? I think it'd be great. Doesn't seem that uh, the world agrees, but I think it all starts with us, right? It all starts with us personally making a decision to reach out and say, hey, I care about you. Hey, you're important to me. Hey, I love you. Do that. Because life is seriously short and you don't want to waste a second of it because at some point it will be gone and you have to enjoy every moment. Everything can turn on a dime. We've all learned this the hard way in the last two years. Everything can just change overnight. So take a step back, look at your life, be honest with yourself about it, recognize the good in it, fix the things you think need fixing. It's your life. Live it the way you want to live it. Cultivate the good stuff. Plant those seeds, water those seeds, love those seeds. Grow them into something beautiful. Try to rid yourself of the negativity. If you need help, ask for it. Go get it. Reach out to the people that matter. Be there for them when they need you. Life is short. Watch cheesy monster movies. And as I always say, be good. But if you can't do that, be good at it. Happy holidays, everybody. <laughs> it is I, Dr. Bob Tesla, with your Mimiverse joke of the month. Since this is month number infinity of the pandemic, we're going to keep dealing with our favorite plague rats, the unvaccinated. Two vaccinated people and an unvaccinated one are lost in a desert. They found a lamp and rubbed it, and out came a genie. Now, instead of offering each of them three wishes, he gave them three wishes in total, so one for each person. The first vaccinated person wished to be sent home to their family. Poof, and they were gone. That was so nice. Second vaccinated person wanted to be sent home to their pets, and poof, they were gone, and the pets were very happy to see him. The unvaccinated person said, Aw, I wish my friends were back here. This week, we're off on Twitch, but tune in next Thursday when we will be back with Four Tokens at 6.30, where we play classic arcade games. Next Friday at 10 p.m., we show Cliffhanger Theater, which is a chapter of an old serial. We are on Chapter 5 of Brenda Starr, Reporter, from 1945. She's a strong, independent woman who don't need no man, except he has to save her from whatever peril he, she got into at the end of each chapter. Hey, it's 1945. What do you expect? And then starting Saturday the 11th at midnight, it's the return of Midnight Monster Movies. We'll be starting our rebooted show on Twitch with Monster Kid 101. 
Wonder why? Well, tune in. You'll find out why. And we're starting with the monster of Phantom Lake. If you are a listener of this audio cast, you might have a passing familiarity with the monster of Phantom Lake, or at least you should. Tune in anyway. See what happens. You, you, you'll want to see this brand new one. If, if you don't tune in at midnight, we will have it on video on demand for two weeks on Twitch. Twitch.tv slash drbobtesla. That's Dr. Bob Tesla. So anyway, all these times are Eastern Standard Time. On Sunday the 19th at 1 p.m., we have our monthly game of Betrayal Legacy. We are on Chapter 4 of this Legacy version of Betrayal at House on the Hill. What will happen next? What will we unlock? What? Who, who will the traitor be? Tune in and find out. Until next month, science! <laughs>